people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with Fred Freeman. He is a writer who has been working in the industry for quite a while. And I spoke to him about his early career, but mostly about, well, a little bit about Start the Revolution Without Me, the movie Spies, The Big Bus, and a few other things along the way. Mr. Freeman was a great, great interview subject, and I had a lot of fun talking with him, and I hope you have a lot of fun listening to him. Enjoy the interview. You have been in the business for so many years. I'm very curious. Oh, how God, 19. You're not nearly my age, but I, would, I guess my first job, my first partner was Gary Marshall and I met at Northwestern. And then we became a writing team for a while. We worked first. Our first professional job was the old Jack Parr show, who was, I don't know if you know what that is. It's like Johnny Carson and so forth. And then we came out to the West Coast. We used to write for Joey Bishop and a bunch of comics. And Joey was having a half-hour comedy, which... He shouldn't have had, but he brought us out. Gary wanted to stay in New York, and I said, no, in 1960 or 61, the business was all going to the West Coast. So I convinced Gary to come, let's go out there. And so we wrote for a while. And Joey Bishop's show was, Joey was a good supporting character, but not a lead character to me. And that's what happened. Everyone was looking to grab any comic or someone that they think could carry a show. And not easy to carry a show to me. There aren't too many people that can do it, especially comedians and so forth. You talked about how hard it was for Joey Bishop to carry a show, but it definitely wasn't for an Andy Griffith. And I know you wrote a lot for him as well. Yeah, yeah. I like that show. That was a very hard show to do, but it was worth it because... It was more character-driven than joke-driven. I was writing with Larry Cohn, who's passed away since. And we did one episode of, I can't remember it, but we thought we were almost embarrassed to hand it in because it was so dull, we thought. And that was the episode there was no rewrite on at all. But Andy Griffith was, I like, he was a nice guy. We sat in story conferences. The original writers that were there, I think they were very good it was a good learning experience, really. And Van Dyke and Bewitched and, oh, wow, God, what else? Oh, Gilligan's Island, of course, which I used to have to get drunk and stoned to write because I thought it was so silly. But then I realized people would love it that I heard it, that I wrote it, and I, I couldn't understand it, frankly. People really liked it, but I guess I got used to just saying, Thank you. And then I didn't go further saying it was stupid. But producer Sherwood Schwartz was a good producer because it was very easy working for anyone that says, I like that, I don't like that, rather than saying, I don't know if I like that or not. 
maybe you can come up with something else. So it's always, the, whether it's a boss in the garment business or on television or anything, when someone knows what they want, it's great if you're working for them. You mentioned Larry Cohen, and I'm very curious, how did you meet him? In New York, what I did when I went with it, just before I went to New York from Chicago, joined that they had a program, a six-month program in the Army, where you go in for six months, and then you go for reserve meetings for, God knows, six years or something like that. And so when I came out to L.A., <clears throat> I was in reserve meetings, and I met Larry Cohn there. Gary and I broke up because I quit the Bishop show. I couldn't end it anymore. He, he was awful. And when I, I remember it was a story meeting, and I remember I used, oh, I was a pretentious college student. You used the word like, the protagonist, Joey. What do you mean, the bullshit protagonist? And we got in the fight, and he says, if you don't like it, you can get out of here. And I said, oh, I think I will. And I said, Gary, if you want to stay, and Gary, who was much more pragmatic and practical than I was, he said, okay, I'll stay. So even though we worked again together on certain shows, but we remained close friends until he died. I was in his hospital room when he passed away. We were just very close. I would usually read over the screenplays or that he did, give him my two cents or comment or give him an idea, whatever. So it was always a good relationship for many, God, a lot of years, 1956. <clears throat> and I, Anyway, Larry Cohn and I wrote a lot of pilots and stuff like that. CBS loved the pilots we did because they were so outrageous. I said, oh, they're wonderful, but we'll never put them on the air. <laughs> so... <laughs> We did a pilot of Henry VIII with a son and daughter. We did a pilot about the Underground Railroad with the plantation and the black, black, blacks. If you know what the Underground Railroad was, it actually, I think it came into Detroit also. Indianapolis, I think, was the set of it, helping the blacks come north. And we wrote crazy stuff, and it was pretty funny. Some of them got the pilot, some didn't. Uh, but they said we could never put them on the air. So we amused the executives. And we wrote, started, did our first feature in 1970 with Donald Sutherland and Gene Wilder called Start, Start the Revolution Without Me. We came close. We had a lot of development deals. and We did a couple of original screenplays, but working with some wonderful directors, Milos Forman. I'm trying to think of the other ones we worked with. It was always helpful to work with a good director in development. They didn't go anywhere. You know. so, oh, I can't remember. Anyway, the big bus was had some funny scenes. wasn't a very wasn't a great movie. Had a few funny scenes though in it to me. Start the revolution. I always felt needed more style from the director, even though I really liked Bud Yorkin a lot. And every, everyone kept warning us about Norman Lear, and he'll change everything. Norman didn't touch a word. He he said it was probably one of the best comedy screenplays he'd ever read, which was very nice. And Donald Sutherland said it was one of the best screenplays that he did, whether it's Clute or Ordinary People. 
which I was flattered by that. Whether he meant it or not, I don't know, but it was very nice of him to say that. Gene Wilder was another story, not sometimes a little difficult. He loved the screenplay, otherwise it's the revolution, and now so we thought we'd develop other things and go on with them, but we did, never did anything else after that with Gene. He was very funny to me, and he was terrific, as Donald was terrific. That's why we did Spies. Donald brought us in to rewrite the major, as a major rewrite of the script. And we at least got us to Europe for 10 weeks at least, which is always a nice way to go when someone's else, someone else is paying. What was the script like on Spies before you got involved? It was okay. It just wasn't, that, as I recall... We even called the original writer and told him we were going to be doing a rewrite. You know, I, I don't know, I feel certain respect sometimes for any, even if I don't like the screenplay. It wasn't that, that was, wasn't, didn't have as much humor in it as it could have had. And we, I don't, I, look, <laughs> I'm one of these people who have done, we've done four features and I like 20 minutes out of all four. <laughs> so, not a good person to ask sometime, even though I spies, we perked it up a little bit, but it's, I didn't think it was that terrific. And even though a couple of writers I respect called me and said, God, what a great movie that was. And I said, really? <laughs> and there were some interesting stories were mostly the funniest one that came out of it was the opening day of shooting. Donald and Elliot, I believe, showed up. Irv Kirshner was the director. And they said, we decided to change roles. <laughs> and Bob Chardoff, thank God, Bob Chardoff, was, he said, what the fuck are you talking about? Get on the set and head to your life. So was, I don't know where that came from and why they did it, because I don't think we were even there for the opening day. I think we'd gone back. And so it was strange. And Elliot hated the script. Oh, yeah. yeah. He was nasty and whether he was drugs or which I was told he was I, not good a good one for telling people when they're on drugs or not, but he said this is shit. I'm not. Yes, yeah, blah blah blah. Anyway, he was not terribly nice to us, but that uh, doesn't. Uh, in retrospect, it doesn't bother me one way or the other. Quite honestly, it's, it's, certain actors are easy to work with. Who knows? I, what was going on in someone's life at that point. I, they got through shooting and everything like that, and it was, it was okay. I, as I said, I wasn't that thrilled with the film. Irvin Kirshner, uh, he had a lot of, he had experience doing stuff and everything, and nice man. And uh, see, I'm trying to think what else, but Donald I always liked. Actually, Donald, Donald and I had our knees replaced at the same time. So about, oh, God, eight, nine years ago, something like that. So the physical therapist said, Donald wants to know, can he call you? I said, yes, he can call me. He was very nice. He at least respected writing. And he had actually... He had a better career than Gene did, in a way, to me. More, longer, at least. You know. yeah, yeah. And still, I, I didn't see the movie he just did for HBO. The one with Nicole Kidman, I didn't see that. 
I heard he was terrific at it. I have to say, when it comes to spies, the, my favorite bits are the bits with Joss Eklund. I really like him and his character. That's true. He was interesting. I always liked his work, actually. I've seen him in other things. He was very good. And the only thing I remember writing, I don't remember it even. The only thing I remember writing was they were in a Peugeot with a young kid driving, and he said, no, I can't go fast. It's a break-in period or something like that. I remember the dog shit they had to go through. Those are at least those are some of the things we did. There there wasn't a lot left of the original script. We put, and we don't change to change. If someone does something good, I'm not going to change it. Or if someone has a better joke from if someone's on the set, then you're, someone yells a better joke. I'll do it. I'll change it. Never had a desire to direct, frankly. I I think talking to actors is a special... I would probably over-talk to actors. That's why sometimes, I don't know whether it's John Houston or someone said, just say faster or slower. That's it. But Gary was a good director because he had a very happy set, made sure everyone was happy in a way. So he got the most out of people. But Yorkin I liked a lot. And Norman and I, we got along very well. Norman was very complimentary of the script and everything. That those are the days where we had a we did a forty page treatment before we could do the script, which is, is unheard of today. Frankly, you just write original script and try to sell it, or you just go brief story thing and then give you a go ahead or not. That biggest thing that changed business to me was when shows went from freelance writing where. We did a Van Dyke, we did a Gilligan's Island, we did the Andy Griffith and Bewitched. And then when it changed, and I think Norman is the one who changed it to staff, doing a staff, a staff on every show had, whether you called them producers or whatever you want to call them, they were all writers usually. So we had maybe sometimes eight to 12 people on staff. How did the big bus come about? We had an idea, the thing with, Norman Lear was the first. We had a very good, powerful agent at the time. And he said he set up a meeting with Norman. And Norman said he's always been tying with twins that were born in the Civil War. And we talked about it. And I said, if we're going to do that kind of comedy, it's like a Moliere thing. So let's do it in the French Revolution. So that's where we did it. The big bus came out. We had an idea of just doing a satire of disaster movies, naturally a year before Airplane. And we had the same producer as Airplane. Everyone thought Airplane stole stole it from us. And I said, no, they didn't. They did a joke a second. You were trying to tell a story, probably mistakenly. And Burt Reynolds wanted to do it. And that would have really, frankly, the movie put it would have made money, I think, and done better. But Joe Bologna, I always liked as an actor. He was very funny in it, Stocker Channing. But we don't want to do an airplane disaster movie. We'll do the first nuclear-powered nonstop bus. I always remember when Gary and I lived in New York. We lived with a couple of musicians, crazy things. One of them said, a friend of theirs asked, what are Gary and Freddie like? And he said, well, they're funny, he said. But if Gary tells a joke, a lot of people laugh. 
if Freddie tells a joke, not as many laugh, but they laugh harder. <laughs> so, and I was always flattered by that. There's a certain truth in that, but and that, Gary was terrific. He had much more of a sense of the average person, what they liked in, in comedy with Laverne and Shirley or Mark and Mindy, those shows like that. I would have never thought about those shows. And I really wasn't interested in writing for those shows. Sometimes I think we made some poor decisions by doing stuff that we never get going. We never sell is the idea. It's a matter of trying to sell something. And that's why the remember when the CBS guy said, we love your work, but we'll never put it on the air. It was a strange. <laughs> when you do a thing about Henry VIII and a son and daughter, but it was a half-hour comedy. It was actually, you could probably do it today, just make it a little racier or something. So we did a thing with Andy Kaufman. The pilot was actually produced. It was a good idea. It was in the future, and Andy Kaufman was a robot for a family, young family. And Andy, who was a very strange but sweet guy, everything was Mr. Freeman, Mr. Cohen. Can I have a question? He was good, and it, oh, God, the casting, the, the casting to me is everything, frankly, outside of a decent script, but. It just didn't work, but it was, uh, it's a good show. Someone sell it again today. So I, don't, I said, I'll be happy to sell it and take less money and not write it. But uh, we did a lot of strange stuff. Big Bus was kind of weird. and But a good comedy cast in it. Had Richard Mulligan, we worked with again on, and I forgot the song. The name of the show already got it. He was for four or five years. That we ran it for three years. What was the name of that? God damn it. Shit. Was it Empire? <laughs> no, Empire was... That was another thing that... Oh, God. <laughs> that could have, should have been better. We did six episodes. And again, CBS, in their infinite wisdom, made us change the lead of the show to Dennis Dugan, who was an actor. And the lead of the show was a uh, Perry, oh, uh, Perry, goddamn, an actor at the time. Not a comic actor. No, Perry, shit, the actor's name. Oh, yeah, I don't know. I can't think of it. Anyway, it was like a young guy coming into the corporate world. And it's going into the lion's den, really, with the backbiting and killing, <laughs> cheating people, so forth. Big corp- work for a big corporation like GE. Patrick McNee, who was in The Avengers with Diana Rigg, if you remember that show. And Patrick was wonderful in it. And he, well, he tried to get it done. We almost got it done on Yorkshire television in England. It had been the first time a half-hour comedy goes from America to England. Mostly England gave us all the half-hours. Um, but God, I'm um, trying to think. Anyway, it was, was, was very good in in a way, but it didn't, oh God, I I don't know. It's hard to describe sometimes when you look back on something to say, why didn't it go further? And wasn't anyone's fault 
but our own. I have no one to blame on it, like the networks or anything. Needed a, a simpler, clearer, good versus evil feeling to it. And there was too much of a satire. We've done satires, whether it's the big bust or start the revolution. But I, a famous playwright, George Kaufman, I don't know if you're familiar who, who he was, George's the man who came to dinner and so forth. He once said, satire was what closes on Saturday night. <laughs> and it's true. It's a play of ideas, sometimes more than a play of characters or people. And sometimes it clicks and sometimes it doesn't. Oh, was it Empty Nest, the one with Mulligan? Empty Nest, thank you. Yeah, Empty Nest. Richard was crazy, but he was funny. <laughs> and Empty Nest, it was, I remember the, we were brought in, we were good friends of the producers, Paul Witt and Tony Thomas at the time, and they were desperate to have someone run the show. It was making them crazy because they had other shows. So they brought us in and gave us our retirement money, I guess I would say. And they were very good producers. And Richard was fine. He was difficult sometimes with his Irish anger occasionally. But he was wonderful. And, and uh, I remember the first year we were there, we came in in the third year, I think. And the first year we were there, he was getting married to this. I don't think she was a call girl exactly, but... It was so disaster, and we were all scared for him because she was friends with the mob and all that stuff. <laughs> and we remember at the end of the first year, some, like, someone came on stage and served him with, the show was going on, <laughs> served Richard with divorce papers. <laughs> so it was very strange. I guess she took a lot of his personal things. He was petrified, so he checked into the Century City Hotel under a pseudonym. So I remember Larry and I had to go there to go over stories with him. And, and so we go, we said, oh, we want to see Mr. Harold Martinson. Oh, you mean Mr. Mulligan? Yes, he's up. <laughs> it's like, it was like a sketch almost. Very. Richard was a sweet man, crazy, but very funny and God, it's, it's as you get older, your peer group begins dying, <laughs> as you'll find out. And uh, and Alan Burns just died, who was a good friend. You mentioned working with Milos Forman. When was that, and what project were you working on with him? Well, this was an original screenplay Larry and I did called The Flasher. I think we sold it three times. It went from Warner's the CBS movies that did movies at the time, and then someone else bought it, and they, oh, MGM. And then we went to MGM. So MGM had Milos Forman came over. I, lo I loved working with him. He would come in after a night of debauchery, and, he would, and he'd throw himself on my couch in my, my house, and I lived there, and he said, Fred, coffee! <laughs> But he was a terrific director. God, I loved his work. So good. It was The Flasher was about a young, naive cop in the 60s who gets on the Vice Squad. And he's so innocent about that. He has to go dress up gay and go into a porn shop to buy. And and his, his, his best friend, who was his mentor on the Vice Squad, 
was a flasher at night. And he eventually had to arrest them and so forth. But it was an interesting script, pre-legal abortion. So we dealt with that also. And it's hard to sell those kinds of films. And we were going to do a film with John Candy. And we wrote for MGM, was called Canistan, which was a movie company that's doing a movie in Canistan. And John Candy was like the director of it. And the studio cut off all funds. Like Transamerica was a studio, or Paramount, you know, Trans. And so John Candy, John, we mild, <laughs> modeled him after Milius, John Milius, who was a director, who wore a sidearm and <laughs> so forth. And he took all the extras that in the army, and they rode down into the local town to. They robbed the bank to get money to continue <laughs> with the film. And what happened is it was people thought it was a trigger to overthrow the government. <laughs> so it was a funny feature. I don't know. Again, we had a lot of interest, but and we were almost going to get done. And then they, no, we can't. It's going to be too much money. We don't want to take a chance on it. And the funniest was the head of MGM at. I don't know if he was the head of MGM or just the head of development at MGM. I don't know. I can't remember who it was, but we saw his comments on the cover page of our screenplay. And it was the comment was, this is either ahead of its time or behind its time. <laughs> so that, that, that's what you deal with sometimes. Anyway, poor John, he really wanted to do it. And I think, and a lovely man, but. We did a movie called Delirious with him. It was an original screenplay, in a way, satiric to a degree, about soap operas, where he's a soap opera writer who is in love with the lead lady. And he's taking a trip in the country, and he crashes his car, and he's brought into the hospital, into the town of his own making. So he has control with his, this is how old it was, with his typewriter, not a computer. So it was like 1991 or two, something like that, I think. But John was a sweetheart. But we knew it wasn't surprised when he died because he was a workaholic. He drank, he smoked, he ate, and he didn't take care of himself. But a lovely man. That's when we wanted to do Afghanistan with him, and he wanted to do it too. God, anyway, that happens. That happens. Uh, the best moment I had was meeting Joseph Mankiewicz, who was a wonderful director. His son, Tom Mankiewicz, was directing Delirious. And so we were, when we went to New York to shoot on location, his father showed up, and it was. I did a nasty thing, though. Before we got to New York, on the plane to New York, traveling with John Candy and the cast and the film crew who was doing the, the back, back scenes of the back backstage scenes of the of the movie, taping it for a future release for television, and they said, "So, what do you think of Tom Mankiewicz?" And I said, "Wait a minute, I thought Joe Mankiewicz was directing this movie." <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, that was nasty, but 
can't think of too many other things outside of the other thing that I did was the wonderful thing that I'll never forget was when I came, Gary and I came out to California on the Jack Parr show and we stayed here and Parr went back east and Dick Cavett was replacing us. So Dick and I were friendly when he was a head of doing, I think, talent or commercials he was doing on the Parr show. One of the things I always liked was Cavett and, and Woody and I would go to the old New Yorker theater to watch all the old W.C. Fields films. So I became good friends with, with Dick and briefly with Woody. But when we came out here, Parr wanted to do a salute to Stan Laurel of Laurel and Hardy. And so Dick and I went out to interview Stan Laurel. And it was great. So I used to go back there a lot. And then Peter Sellers wanted to meet him as the press agent knew me, and he says, can you set up a meeting with Stan Laurel? Because Peter Sellers would love to meet him. And I said, you don't need me. (laughs) He's in the phone book. (laughs) And he was in the phone book. No, we'd have have So meeting Stan Laurel was a treat. Sellers I took out there, who was a nervous wreck because he was such in awe of Stan Laurel. Stan Laurel had a slight stroke, so he hadn't seen many of hadn't seen any of Sellers' movies, and Sellers was so freaked out. Strange man. We got involved later on a film with him. It was an awful experience. He was totally, very, extremely talented, funny, but really, I think, certifiably crazy. <laughs> oh. But anyway, so Stan, he asked Stan Laurel, he said, God, when you, during the Blitz in London, I remember seeing you and you were so good and you were out who were you you were on the stage with a funny guy and I can't remember his name and Stan Laurel says Hardy and we all burst out laughing except for Stan Peter Sellers because he I know who he was talking about there's an actor named Jimmy Finlayson who was the guy with the big mustache in all the Laurel and Hardy movies and they I loved them I thought they made me laugh. Chaplin made me admire, but not laugh that much. But Stan Laurel, they were damn funny. He, meeting him was one of the thrills. He and Mankiewicz were, were thrills in my life, actually. It's great. It's great thing. Meeting people who you really, you love their work, and meeting them is a treat. Unless they're crazy, like Sellers. Blake Edwards knew how to handle them. Obviously, he did. He could deal with them. Found some way to do. It. Yeah, yeah. I don't want that too many. He, although Hal Ashby got him to do being there, he was wonderful in that. You know, and Stanley Kramer, who's also crazy, not Stanley Kramer, Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick. Yeah, yeah. Difficult. God, Stanley Kramer was a, a nice man, and he had done some interesting things. And we had a meeting. He wanted to do something about oil and Israel and Palestine and as he told us the idea we couldn't even follow it it was probably in his 70s or 80s when we met him and I was embarrassed because I, I couldn't follow what he was talking about but a very nice man who's done a lot of did a lot of good work oh god so godsend when you work with someone that's easy and contribute I always look, if someone can, has a good idea, I'll take it. I'm sure Neil Simon hated it when anyone would say, change any line at all. I, was, I never knew him at all, but I always heard difficult 
terms of if you change one little thing. And I can understand sometimes the meter of a joke or something. It's important to keep that meter. But they didn't fool with it. They, didn't, they stayed away in Nichols. Not, yeah, Nichols. I shared the book out. I read a review of his book. Someone did a biography. He really got in with the whole New York society and Jackie Kennedy. And he was uh, snobbish and whatever. But his work is wonderful. God. Elaine May, was she was... God, they were funny. Jesus. I think I'm going to look for their stuff again. I know, I always, my memory is always having a good time with Woody going to the New Yorker Theater with he and Dick Cavett. Yeah, that was fun. Watching the old W.C. Fields films and stuff. The only thing I would say about Elliot Gould, I don't care to go into drugs or I have no... I had no knowledge of that. Just why I was told that, quite honestly, because I'm not good at judging. I could be on a movie set with someone for six to eight weeks, and I was actually with a director who did the big bus, who was always on, who was always high, and I finally started seeing white stuff on his face. So I said, maybe he is on drugs. <laughs> but it is true about that Donald. He wanted to change roles. On the first day of shooting, and Kirshner said, "Okay, okay." And Bob Chardoff said, "No, <laughs> nice man, Chardoff. I never knew Winkler that well, but Chardoff, I knew. They were trying to capitalize on Donald and Elliot's thing from Mash. That they thought they'd do it again. And we were supposed to do a sequel to The In-Laws with Arkin, and we met with Arkin and Peter Falk, and." We met and talked, and we never... But I thought Bid Laws was a very funny film, very good film. I'd never want to do a sequel of something that was really great. You said that you're still writing today, and curious what you're working on and what's keeping you busy. Basically, a screenplay that's got some interest, and I'm doing a lot of it, just to keep finding out things about it. Basically, it's... I'm trying to think of how to describe it. It's a guy who is in charge of donations and bequests at a university, millions of dollars. And, of course, he's a gambler. And, of course, he's dipped in into some of the stuff that he takes in. And he his life starts to unravel. It's a comedy, but it's... And he ends up... He's going to marry this one woman, and he ends up at, with his crazy secretary who would best be described as a young version of an old actress. I love Carol Lombard. If you're, I don't know if you old movies at all, if you ever watch them at all. Anyway, so it's kind of crazy, offbeat thing, and I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying the writing of it, at least. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see. What, never, you, never, you don't know. It's got good response from one place, but big thing is to find a director who will get it made or a star who will get it made. It, it's no different today than it was years ago. Hard to get stuff made, even with all the cable shit today. There is. There's so many buyers out there, and it's still difficult. It's never been, it's never been easy. Unless you're writing a certain kind of film like the action adventure and explosions <laughs> or whatever. But I still always contended that a movie, Born Identity, that whole thing, which I think was terrific. Most of the, the first one was terrific, I thought. And what 
what makes them work to me and what keeps them going is the explosions, blah, 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 is in the background. The foreground is the character. And you got with Jason Bourne and what he was trying to do. And you, that's why you need the characters to carry it usually. You can't just be carried by the number of killings and explosions. Maybe there's an exception, but I always feel you are carried by the character and his relationships or conflicts. Tale of our castaways, they're here for a long, long time. 